The ingredients for today's episode are Edgar, Entanglement, and Yenever. I'm Andy Anderson, the Mischievous Maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. Ricordi, Puccini's publisher, commissioned a new opera from the young composer immediately following the successful reception of his first opera, La Ville. The publisher told Fontana, the librettist, who had also worked with Puccini on La Ville, quote, Set all your imagination in an eruption for the new libretto to be given to Puccini. If I insist on this, it's because one must strike while the iron is hot. Fontana had already suggested to Puccini the subject of Alfred Musset's dramatic poem La Coupe et la Lèvre. Without any hesitation, Puccini accepted the idea and the project moved forward. The French writer, Alfred Musset, was born into an upper-class family with no money. He quickly became a literary star, and by the age of 20 was well-known throughout Europe. He lived as a dandy bohème, one who lives a lifestyle that would indicate money, but really doesn't have any. Bizet wrote an opera in 1871 based on one of his unknown plays. And then from there on, numerous other composers and musicians set his text to music as well including the composer Léon Cavallo, and even more recently, Lily Boulanger. Fast forward to 2007, and Celine Dion even recorded a song about Musée and his longtime lover. In the spring of 1885, Fontana was finished with his revisions to Lavilli, and then could turn his full attention to the libretto for Edgar. His first major task was to narrow the huge story down to a very specific time and place. He transferred the action to Flanders in the year 1302, the year the Flemings beat the French in a major battle. For the most part, Fontana wanted to maintain the structure of the plot, but also wanted to create some occasions for lavish scenes in the style of grand opera. And speaking of grand opera, the characters of Edgar mirror the characters in Bizet's opera Carmen. My friends, since we're talking about an Italian opera that's based on a play written by a Frenchman, that takes place in Flanders, I thought that a really good drink would be the Dutch and Stormy. Now, what's in a Dutch and Stormy? Well, I'm getting ready to tell you. Hold on. Calm down. You're going to need Dutch gin. Now, this is also called Yenever. Easier just to call it Dutch gin, unless you're fluent in Dutch and, well, you can call it whatever you want. You're also going to need some fresh lime juice. Fresh, please. Always fresh. You're going to need some bitters and some ginger beer. Yenever is also called Dutch gin. It's a juniper-flavored traditional liqueur in the Netherlands, Belgium, the adjoining areas of northern France, and Germany. And it was originally produced by distilling malt wine to a 50% ABV, alcohol by volume. Because this resulted in a really strong spirit that wasn't palatable, they added herbs to mask the flavor. It was also used for medicinal purposes. 
Now, don't let this confuse you. Just because it has the word gin in it, this is not your mom's gin. This is not a British and English gin. So it's not going to taste anything like what you think of gin, but it is really, really quite delicious. So this is how you make it. Grab a rocks glass and put some ice in it. To that, add one shot of the Dutch gin. Now add a half ounce of fresh lime juice. Now give it a dash of bitters and top it with ginger beer. Give it a stir and enjoy. Okay, my friends, with our drink in hand, maybe now we can start to understand the plot. So everyone take a sip. Here we go. Act one. The innocent neighborhood girl, Fidelia, celebrates Edgar's return from his debauchery-induced getaway with Tigrana. She sings a loud, high aria, and then places almond branches near his head while he sleeps. As Edgar awakens, Fidelia notices the not-so-innocent neighborhood girl Tigrana approaching. She is coming over to try to convince Edgar to return to their life of total debauchery. She fails when Edgar announces his love for Fidelia and her purity. Franck, who loves Tigrana, enters and tries to win her love by singing one of the few baritone arias composed by Puccini. When this doesn't work, he berates her and they argue. After fighting with Frank, Tigrana makes fun of the people in the village while they pray. She is kicked out of the village. She goes to Edgar's house, where he defends her. 
He then announces with a really loud high B flat that he will go with her. And to make sure everyone knows that he really is leaving, he burns his house down and stomps off stage. While stomping off stage, he and Franck get into a duel and Franck is wounded. The villagers curse the lovers, Franck bleeds on stage, the orchestra plays really beautiful music, and the curtain falls. Everyone take another sip. It's about to get weird. Act 2. As the curtain rises, we find Edgar leaving a wild orgy at Tigrana's house. He's tired and dreams of returning to Fidelia. Tigrana comes outside to ask him to come back to the party. Just as this happens, a group of soldiers arrives. Franck is among them, and he and Edgar sing a beautiful duet, asking each other for forgiveness. Franck announces that he is no longer in love with Tigrana. Edgar decides to join the group of soldiers as they march off to battle. Once gone, Tigrana vows her revenge. Act three. Hold on, take another sip. Mm-hmm. 
A large funeral is taking place. Edgar has fallen in battle. Frank and the crowd praise Edgar as a hero. As this happens, a monk enters and claims to have heard Edgar's dying confession and denounces him for his life of debauchery and sin. The crowd once again flip-flops on the issue and now curses Edgar. Fidelia sings an aria stating that she alone believes in him and will meet him in heaven. After the crowd leaves, Tigrana enters crying. She's upset she missed the funeral, and no one will witness her tears. Frank and the monk ask her to denounce Edgar, but she resists until they offer her jewels. After all, diamonds are a girl's best friend. The crowd returns, and the monk tells the crowd that Edgar betrayed his country for gold, and Tigrana confirms this. The soldiers rip open Edgar's burial armor, only to find it empty. The monk removes his robe, to reveal that he is Edgar, and then starts to leave with Fidelia, the only one who remained true to him. Tigrana gets angry, stabs Fidelia, the crowd gasps, Edgar cries over her dead body, the soldiers arrest Tigrana, the crowd prays loudly, and the curtain falls. All of this was submitted to Puccini with the aid of graphic diagrams illustrating the shape of each of the three acts. This was a common practice for the scapigliato. What's the scapigliato? It was a movement, an artistic movement, from about 1815 to 1871 in Italy, and it included poets, writers, musicians, painters, and sculptors. Basically, it's the Italian equivalent of the French bohemians. It means unkempt or disheveled. It was developed in Milan in the various taverns and cafes. It attracted the attention and scandalized the more conservative and Catholic circles of Italy with various pamphlets and journals and magazines, and the writings challenged the status quo artistically, socially, and politically. It became an active uh, political movement as well, 
it helped develop the socialist and the anarchist movements in Italy at the time. They even attempted to rejuvenate Italian culture through foreign influences, including German Romanticism, French Bohemian, and even the works of the American writer Edgar Allan Poe. They also helped with the introduction of Wagner's music in Italy. Major figures in this movement were the poet and writer Emilio Praga and Franco Faccio, the conductor, who coincidentally conducted the world premiere of Edgar. Anyway, back to Edgar. The libretto was completed and in Puccini's hands by May of 1885, and a performance the following year was confidently predicted. Not so much. It would take almost another four years before Edgar would see the stage. There were several circumstances that contributed to the delay. Since Puccini's mother had died, he had become the head of the family. All of his sisters got married, except for one who had taken a vow and become a nun. But we'll talk more about her in a later episode when we talk about Swore Angelica. His brother, Michele, turned out to be the trouble child. It was a little bit more of a different story. He failed out of the conservatory that he was only accepted to because of his brother. He then moved to Argentina. Here, he was celebrated as the brother to the great composer of La Ville, which had been performed there a year before in 1886. He was offered a job teaching piano in Italian with a pretty decent salary, but like his brother, Michele had a wandering eye for women and would often get in trouble with someone's husband. He once wrote, quote, Feminine virtue here is quite incredible. The girls all want husbands and the married women seldom give in. Often, one must take up with some servant just for the sake of one's bodily health. After a duel with a friend because of an affair with his wife, Michele got run out of town and settled in Rio. Here, he was struck with yellow fever and died in 1891. Puccini wrote, quote, I don't think I felt such sorrow even when our poor mother died. I too long for death. What have I to do with this world? I can get no peace. I'm completely finished. This has been the final straw for me. And I don't believe that in this case, time will prove the usual healer. However, during all of this, Puccini himself had also become entangled in a relationship just as adulterous. It was sometime during the composition of Edgar that Puccini met Elvira, the wife of a Lucan businessman. Elvira was younger than Puccini and already the mother of two children. When Puccini left for Milan in June of 1886, she went with him, but told her friend she was going to Palmero. On December of that year, she gave birth to their child, Antonio. Elvira got an official separation from her husband, and she got full custody of their daughter, Fosca, and their son, Renato, remained in his father's custody. The relationship with Elvira wasn't always peaceful. Remember, Puccini had a roving eye. Each time that he would have an extramarital relationship, even though they weren't married until 1904, he would be filled with an overwhelming sense of guilt. He was Catholic, after all. A letter written to him from a friend offers advice on all matters, including working hard, not falling more into debt, and even more specific, quote, keep clear of women who, with rare exceptions, are the plague of society, or at the very least, your life. No one was more helpful to Puccini than his librettist Fontana. He himself also involved with another man's wife. It was Fontana that offered to help with their departure from Luca when Elvira's pregnancy was becoming visible. 
He also found them a place where she could give birth to their child in relative seclusion. Soon after Antonio was born, Elvira and Puccini decided to live apart for a while. She took their son and her daughter Fosca to live with her mother and sister in Florence, and Puccini moved closer to Fontana so they would be able to finish work on the opera. The relationship took its toll on the new opera. In 1886, Puccini was forced to beg Ricordi for an extension of his monthly stipend, which was set to expire in June, giving as his reason the extreme difficulty of the opera and the fact that he had a brother to help maintain. Puccini wrote, quote, Therefore I would beg of you to prolong the allowance so that I may go on with my work free from worry. I should be grateful if you would write me a line to relieve my anxiety. Forgive this boring confession, dashed down as best I could in confidence. Side note. In 1888, Puccini traveled to Bayreuth to see a new production of Parsifal. Fontana traveled with Puccini, and unlike the 1889 trip that was paid for entirely by Ricordi, on this trip, they had to pay all of their expenses themselves. In fact, for several months following the trip, Fontana was constantly reminding Puccini to repay his share of the trip's expenses. This trip would have a huge impact on Puccini and the completed orchestral score for Edgar. Wagner's influence is heard throughout the score, especially in the long orchestral interludes. Okay, my friends, here we are to opening night, finally. If you've got a little left, take another sip of your drink. If you don't, make another one. Hold on one second. I've still got a sip. Opening night was scheduled for the carnival season in 1889 at La Scala. The cast was first class. The soprano that played Fidelia was Italy's first Isolda. And the soprano that played Tigrana was the creator of the role of Verdi's Desdemona. The conductor was Franco Faccio. All seemed set to propel Puccini into the limelight and would throw the success of Lavilli into the shadows. However, it was not meant to be. The premiere on April the 21st was mildly received by the critics. They singled out certain moments for special praise, but they did not disguise the fact that the audience had not been enthusiastic. There were some harsh judgments. One critic accused Puccini of, quote, great sins against art lack of faith, conviction, and well-defined ideals. After the performances, Puccini wrote a letter to Faccio thanking him and his performers for their work. However, Puccini and Ricordi both knew the opera failed and something would have to be done about it. Edgar was removed after three performances and the composer and librettist were called into a conference with Ricordi. After the long meeting, Ricordi wrote to Puccini, quote, that never-ending discussion of nearly five hours your good Fontana has shown himself an eloquent orator, but a frivolous one. 
more of a philosopher lawyer than a poet. Before you lay hands on Edgar to rework it, I must speak to you in private. After meeting with Ricordi, Puccini set out to revise the work, to try to salvage it. In January of 1890, Ricordi published a revised version of the opera that included a different ending to Act Two. In September of 1891, for a production in Lucca, Puccini revised the work again, cutting Act Four and producing a three-act version, which would again be revised in 1905. Following a performance in 1905, Puccini wrote, quote, Edgar last night was only so-so. It is nothing more than warmed-up soup. I've always said that. What is needed is a subject that throbs with life and is believable, not trash. After this version, Puccini finally stopped working on the opera and would later in life claim the work was useless. Puccini wrote, Quote, in setting the libretto of Edgar, I have, with all respects to the memory of my friend Fontana, made a blunder. On a copy of the score that he sent to a friend, after autographing it, he wrote the words, Ed Dio ti guardi da questa opera, and may God protect you from this opera. To quote Ricordi, in Edgar there are such daring situations that it needed the whole force of the composer's genius to make them tolerable. It needed a powerful and inspired musician like Puccini to clothe with music the savage theme furnished to him by the poet. Side note, 35 years later, on December the 3rd, 1924, the opening of Act Three of Edgar was once again heard in Milan, but this time it was at the funeral of the composer. This time, one critic wrote, quote, As the voices of the instruments rose in the cathedral, a thrill of emotion passed through the crowd of listeners. It was the voice of the master himself that they heard in those fresh, youthful melodies, which recalled one of the best moments of Puccini's inspiration, melodies which burst from his heart, loftly flights in which the songs to come were already heralded. Elvira wrote, quote, The critics then finally had nothing to say. They're only to be silent, to admire, and to reverence. Puccini, companioned by his early melodies, was rising to immortality. So, my friends, there aren't very many recordings of Edgar available. And actually, in the past, I would say 15, 20 years, there's been a couple that's dropped. But my recommended recording for you today is one from 1977, the Opera Orchestra of New York. It was a concert performance. And it had Renata Scotto singing Fidelia and the great Carlo Bergonzi singing Edgar. And it was conducted by Eve Quiller. Highly recommend it. It's on CBS Records. Yeah, you can get it on CD. And I believe there's actually uh, even on Laserdisc, if you remember what those things are from 25, 30 years ago. And my recommended reading for this episode, you notice in the episode, I've been giving a lot of quotes from letters. I'm a huge fan of reading the correspondence of Puccini. He was a prolific writer of text. And sometimes he would write letters just three or four sentences, and then he would send it off. But it was just whatever was on his mind at the time. But there's a really great book called The Letters of Giacomo Puccini, and it's edited by Giuseppe Adami. Highly recommend it. Grab it. You can get it in both Italian, in the original Italian version, and you can also get it in the English translation. And they're all footnoted with various references and so on and so forth. But I really do recommend it. It gives you a really beautiful insight into the mind, into the life of the composer that sometimes you don't hear about all the time. Also, you'll learn that he's quite witty in his writings. 
And sometimes he even sends recipes to friends. There's a great bean soup recipe that he sent to his publisher, Recordy, and it's published in one of the letters. So that's the book that I would recommend today. We have received a couple emails. By the way, if you have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, send me an email at themischievousmaestro at gmail.com, and I will get to your question. If I don't answer it on an episode, I will definitely uh, send you an email to answer that question. Also, there is going to be eventually an episode where we're just going to do Q&A, basically, to answer a bunch of questions that we don't really get to in some of the regular episodes. The first question we got today is from Tara in Kansas City. Hi, Tara. And Tara asks, this is actually a really good question. Well done, Tara. You must be a musician. So Tara asks, when a composer writes a piece that is never performed or rarely performed, what happens to the music? Well, composers always are borrowing from themselves. Puccini did this all the time throughout his entire career. Puccini used music that was cut from Act 4 of Edgar for the love duet in Act 3 of Tosca. He was always using themes from his earlier pieces throughout his career. The opening of La Boheme, for instance, is taken directly from a piece that he wrote as a graduation exercise at the conservatory called Capriccio Symphonico. He also used music from his string quartets and art songs in his operas throughout his whole life. And remember, just because he's an opera composer doesn't mean he was always just composing opera. Even during the composition process of Edgar, he had to take a break to write an art song in honor of a friend of his that was a commission. And so he did that when various people would die. For instance, when the Verity died, he stopped whatever opera he was composing to then compose a piece in memory of those people. So he was a prolific composer more than just the operas that we know of. Music was never wasted, but it was always recycled with Puccini. So Tara, excellent question. Marco in Croatia wrote in, Obviously, Wagner makes a huge impact on Puccini. What other composers did Puccini study for inspiration? Well, Wagner's the huge one. You're absolutely right, Marco. That's absolutely unquestionable. Debussy is another composer that Puccini studied, and you'll hear that in his opera La Fanchula del West, which we'll actually discuss, I believe, on the next episode. You'll also hear the influence of Strauss. Keep in mind, he had seen uh, Zalame right around the time that he was composing Fanchula, so you'll hear a lot of Strauss influence on that score, and also in his later scores beyond that. And of course, Puccini always looked up to Verdi and his other Italian comrades. So I think it is safe to say, though, that as an Italian composer, Puccini did lean a little toward the German side when he was studying other composers. So excellent, excellent question. I'd like to give a shout out today to a really awesome company in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm, of course, speaking of Nashville Opera. NashvilleOpera.org. Check them out. This is an amazing company. Of course, Nashville is Music City. And of course, you always think of the birthplace of country music and, of course, rock eventually from that area. But you don't really think of the classical idioms of music. The Nashville Symphony is one of the finest orchestras in this country and hands down probably in the top three concert halls in the United States, probably actually in North America. Nashville Opera, a fantastic company led by a really good friend of mine. That's not why I'm giving the shout out. But hey, John, I hope you're listening. A really beautiful company. I did a magic flute there a few years back and worked with a really amazing cast. The lady that sang Queen of the Night has now gone on to sing it at the Met every season that they do the magic flute. 
it was just a really great time, a beautiful place to spend uh, a month. So NashvilleOpera.org, check them out. You won't be disappointed, I, I promise. Join us next time, my friends, as we take a look at Puccini's Spaghetti Western, La Fanchula del West. It's a rootin', shootin', gun-slinging good time, and I promise you, you're going to love it. While discussing the opera, we'll be sipping on a very classic whiskey cocktail called the Sazerac. Until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.